Well, thank you, choir. Good song. In your Bible today, the book of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, chapter number 5. Chapter number 5. I've done something today that I've rarely done, and uh, I want to remind you, we'll remind you of it at the end of the service. I've printed my sermon notes, and they'll be on the tables out there in the foyer. And the reason I had them do this is it's, I just think this is such a vital teaching, such an important message that I wanted you to be able to take it home, imprint, stick it in your Bible, and uh, you could do a week or two of Bible study from this if you want to really dig in on it. And so I hope you'll pick up your copy as you go. Jim will remind you at the end of the service. And the subject today is a house with three rooms. This is a message I've preached before here two or three times. I got this idea for this originally many, many years ago, back in the 70s probably. And I read, there's a wonderful book. If you don't have it, you want a great Bible study book, I would encourage you to buy the book Dispensational Truth. Dispensational Truth by Clarence Larkin, L-A-R-K-I-N. He printed that book back in, oh, shortly after the two, uh, 1900s. The book is probably 150 years old or more now. And so it, it, it's one of the greatest studies you'll ever find. And in it, he has the study of what man is. What is the nature of man? And so I'm calling it a house with three rooms. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23, stand with me as we read one verse of Scripture. It's a pretty long one, and it's a wonderful verse. I don't want you to miss the truth of it. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly or fully. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's all read it together, everybody aloud, okay? Verse 23, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, and you may be seated. Socrates, the great uh, Greek philosopher, said his theme was know thyself. Know thyself. He understood even in ancient times the need for what we would call self-understanding. If you don't understand yourself, boy, life can be kind of rough at times, can't it? And it's not easy as you might as easy as you might think to understand yourself. And so I look to the Bible for self-understanding. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, and we won't turn there, you know it. The Bible tells me that God made man in his image. I am made in the image of God. But hold on, that has an implication to it, doesn't it? You see, if God is a trinity, and he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if God is a triune being, then I must be a trinity, and I am a trinity. And so in 1 Thessalonians 5, 
and 23, it tells me the parts of that trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I am what? I am body, soul, and spirit. I am a trinity because I reflect the image of God Himself. And so the title is A House with Three Rooms. I am the house, and there's three rooms in my house. And so let's look at them. Number one, I'm a body. I'm a body. And my body gives me physical life. It doesn't give me spiritual life. My body gives me physical life. And so with my body, I have what we call world consciousness. I know the world beneath me. I look around at the environment. I'm talking about the earth. I'm talking about the universe. I'm talking about God's material and physical creation. And I know the world around me or beneath me but through my body. You know, I have five gates in which all the information that I've ever received in my life came through those five gates. You have those five gates, or most of you do. Sometimes we have somebody who is blind and they don't have that gate, or they're deaf and they don't have that gate. But I have five gates. Everything I know, everything you know came through one of those gates. If, um, if you take away those gates, then people cannot even function. They can't learn. They can't see. They can't do anything. The five gates, you know what they are. So I can see the eye gate. I can hear my ear gate. I can touch things, the touch gate. I can smell things, and that's the sense that God has given me. That's another gate, and I can taste. That's the taste gate, the mouth. Now, those five senses we're all familiar with. We studied those in biology and physical science in school. And those gates let me know the world around me. So everything around me, I learn it through one of those five senses. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1 refers to my body as this earthly house, this earthly house that we live in. And so that's my body. I have a body, my earthly house. The evolutionist denies the image of God in man. He denies that God created man in his image, and he believes that man evolved through different stages. You know the story on that. And the evolutionist compares an animal, for example, with a human being. And he looks at the animal. The animal has a heart, and the human has a heart, or most of them do. And uh, he looks at the animal, and the animal has a mouth, and the human has a mouth, and the animal has hair, and the human has hair. And he looks at all those similarities between an animal and a man. And so he compares the human and the animal body. And he concludes that because these bodies are so similar, that one came out of the other. And so he assumes that we're the highest form of life right now on the planet, and underneath us are the other primates or whatever he labels them, and so the dog or the horse or whatever, he sees similarities, and then he goes down to another level and another level and another level. He gets down to one-cell beings, and he assumes that everything came from that one cell. 
Lots and lots of assumptions based in that model, I tell you. And he concludes that because of the similarity of our bodies, one came from the other. It would be like me going out here walking through an apartment complex. I walk through the car, uh, complex, and the manager shows me the different uh, apartments. And um, they all have a very similar floor plan. And so I make an assumption that because they all have a similar floor plan, they, want, they all came from each other. Right? You say, that's foolish. Now, I know it. I wanted you to say that about it. It's foolish to think that things came from other things just because they're similar. You know, a better line of reasoning would be, I walk through that apartment complex, and I see all those similar floor plans, and I say, they had a common architect. One guy designed this whole thing. And I look at the animals, and I look at the human beings, and I look at the one-cell beings. It doesn't matter. And I say, you know what? They had a common creator. There was a common architect, a common intelligence that brought all of these things into being. So I have a body, and with my body, I have physical life, and I have consciousness of the world around me through those five gates that God placed in my body. Number two, I am a soul, second room of my house. I'm a soul. My soul gives me not physical life. My soul gives me psychological life. The word for soul in the New Testament is suki. We pronounce it in Greek, but it's really the same word, psyche, P-S-Y-C-H-E. It's the word that refers to the soul of man. And so the psychologist and the psychiatrist and so on, they focus on the soul, the suki, and they study it. That's their field of study. And so my soul gives me psychological life. And what is psychological life? With my soul, I know the world within me. I know myself through my soul. But I also know the world around me. I know the world of people, my relationships with people. So I could say, because of my soul, I have psychological life. I am self-conscious. My soul is what I am. When I think of me, when you think of you, you're thinking of your soul. You may think of your body secondarily, but when you say I, that's the soul. That's the part of you that you're conscious of. I have self-consciousness, but I also have consciousness of the people around me. And I'm very aware I'm standing here. There are all these people in front of me. I'm delivering a message from the Bible this morning. I'm trying to communicate certain truths and principles to you today. And so I'm socially conscious. And when I get through, I'll walk through the crowd here, and I'll talk to you, and I'll shake your hand, and we'll say hello, and we'll chat for a moment. I'm aware of you, and, and you're aware of me. That's our psychological life. Now, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, the Bible says that when God created Adam's body and his physical life, that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, a suki. He became a person aware of himself and aware of the people around him. And he wasn't like that. He was just a physical he was a mixture of all these different chemical elements and the dust of the earth until God breathed into him 
And he had psychological life. He began to become aware of himself and aware of the world around him. Now, what is the soul? I've said this to you. I say it often to you, but it bears repetition. I certainly don't apologize because I think it is so necessary we understand this. What is the soul? The soul is your mind, your intellect, your mind. And I get that from Proverbs 24 and 14. And in Proverbs 24 and 14, it refers to the knowledge of wisdom to my soul. See the word knowledge? Knowledge is in your soul, not in your body. Your fingers don't have knowledge. Your soul has knowledge. So it's your intellect, your, your, your mind. Secondly, my soul refers to my emotions. That's another part of my soul, my emotions. And so I feel things in my soul. My soul, uh, according to Samuel 18 and 1, it says the soul of uh, Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. They were close friends. There was a close friendship there. They loved each other. Love is an emotion. Love comes out of my soul. Love doesn't come out of my body. Love is my soul in action, if you will. In John 12 and 27, Jesus was speaking to his apostles, and he said, now is my soul troubled. It's the night before the cross. And as Jesus anticipated going to the cross in just a few hours, what was it that was troubled? My soul is troubled, Jesus said. So, you feel in your soul, your emotions, whether it be hatred or love, anger, whatever it may be, your emotional being is your soul. That's why psychologists treat the suki, the soul. They deal with people's emotions and feelings. And there's another part to my soul. My soul has three parts to it. We call it the will. Job 6 and 17 it says, the things my soul refused to touch. In other words, refused is a choice. So, the soul is the will. The soul is the part of me that makes choices. Animals don't make many decisions. They react on intuition. They react according to their programming. But you and I can step back, analyze the situation, and we can make a choice. I will or I won't. I do or I don't. That is the will, the volition, the ability to make choices, which makes us human. Now, I'm a soul. And with my soul, I have psychological life. I know myself and I know the world around me. My, I am a body. My body gives me physical life. And I have world consciousness of the environment. But number three, I'm a spirit. And go back to your Bible. Look in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23. I don't want you to ever forget this. This is, I tell you, I can't preach a more important message. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body. The Bible says you are a house with three rooms. You have three parts to you. Now, in the secular world, they don't recognize the Spirit. You'll not hear them talk about the Spirit. Or they combine the soul and the Spirit together. They put a dash in between them. And they, 
They don't separate them out. But in the Bible, God's Word separates those out. The soul is not the spirit. The spirit is not the soul. They're, di they're different things. And so I have a body. I have a soul, my mind, emotions, and will. And I have a spirit. And only the Bible, you won't learn that in any other book in all the world probably today except in a Bible or a Bible-oriented book. Now, with my spirit, I have spiritual life. I have spiritual life. So with my spirit, I know the world above me. With my body, I know the world around me. With my soul, I know the world within me. And with my spirit, I know the world above me, the spirit world. So my spirit gives me God consciousness. My body gives me world consciousness, environmental consciousness. My soul gives me self-consciousness. My spirit gives me God consciousness. That's how I know the Lord. Now, <clears throat> that, word, um, that word for spirit in your Bible is pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. That's such an interesting word, and it ties this together. You see, the pneuma is translated wind or breath almost everywhere else in the New Testament. Pneuma. And so we pick that up. We talk about a pneumatic hammer, which is an air hammer. We talk about people getting pneumonia, P-N-E-U, pneumonia. Pneumonia. I pronounced it like that until I was in the eighth grade, you know. But the pneumonia is the wind. It's the breath. It's the air. And the Spirit is the wind of God. The Spirit is the breath of God that we have when we come to know Christ as our Savior, when we have spiritual life. With my spirit, I know God. Jesus illustrated this. Here's how he illustrated. You remember when he was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Jesus said, Nicodemus, except you be born again, you can't go to heaven. You can never even see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, well, how can I be born? I don't understand that. And Jesus said, now listen to what he said. Follow my reasoning here. Jesus said to him, the wind blows, and it comes and it goes. It goes wherever it listeth. In other words, the wind blows wherever it wants to blow. Nobody's controlling the wind. The wind does what it wants to do. It blows, it comes, it's, it has its own life, if you will. The wind blows, and you see it blow. You see the effect of it blowing. You see the leaves as they blow across the parking lot. You see the trees swaying. The wind has tremendous power. But Nicodemus, you've never seen the wind. How do you know there's any wind? You can't, you can't, you can't see it. You can't touch it. You, you, it's, it's, it's an intangible thing. And yet... You can see the effects of it. Well, Nicodemus, you can't see the Holy Spirit of God. You'll never see him or taste him or touch him or smell him. But you know what? You can see his power. You can see his working in the world today if you're observant of it. Nicodemus, that's the way you're born again is the Holy Spirit creates in you spiritual life. So the Spirit gives me life. 
Romans chapter 8 and verse 16 says that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. And you say, how does that happen? I don't know. I can't tell you. I just have to take God's Word. My human knowledge falls short there, and I've never read anybody who could tell me about it. How do you know that God is speaking to you? I don't know, but you will know it when you experience it. You know somebody said down in your nowhere, don't you? You know deep down inside you that God wants you to do thus and so that God is speaking to you. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Now, that animal I talked about a while ago has a body. And that animal even has a, to a limited degree a soul. After all, the animal on a very minimal level can think. You can tell your dog something. He knows what you're talking about. He can think. He has emotions. He gets real happy and runs around the circle or whatever he does. He has a limited range of emotion, a limited intellect. He has, uh, he, he doesn't make many choices. He operates from instinct and intuition, programming that God put in him. But he has a, a, a kind of a little embryonic soul, if you will, in, in him. Your, the animals do, the cat, the dog, the bird, whatever it may be. But the difference really between a human being and an animal, and it's a gap so big no evolutionist will ever be able to cross that bridge. The big difference between an animal and a human being is the spirit. See, an animal doesn't have a spirit, only a body and a soul. But a human being has a body, a soul, and we have a spirit if we're born again. So how did I get into that? Well, you see, the spirit is the part of me that, that gives me a consciousness of God. And so you're conscious of God as you sit here. People will sometimes say to me, man, I sense God's presence in our service. I pray for that. Because I think people can sense, and I don't want to use the word feel. I don't like it. I like the word sense. It's, more, it's a better description. And so I sense the Lord's presence. I have God consciousness. In Job 32 and 8, the Bible says, There is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty gives him understanding. So your ability to have God consciousness is spirit. That's your spirit that's operational there. And then the Holy Spirit gives us illumination or light. He gives us understanding. And so Proverbs 20 and 27 says, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. Now, a candle is lit. It gives light. It illuminates. In the old days, people carried a candle around the house at night. They read by candlelight, believe it or not. It gave them light. It gave them understanding. It, it helped them know where they were. And so the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. So the Lord comes and he illuminates. He gives us light in our spirit, spiritual light. And then the, the spirit is the place where we worship. And if you're ever going to worship God or ever have worshiped God or when you worship God, you worship 
the Lord through your spirit, not your body. The body doesn't worship. And the soul is kind of the way we get there because the soul and the spirit are so closely aligned. But listen to what Jesus said, John 4 and 24, they that worship him must worship him how? In spirit and in light, in spirit. So we worship God in our spirits. It's a spiritual worship. By the way, all people worship. You know, I wish we had a thousand more people here this morning and we filled every empty seat in this place, but, but you know what? Everybody worships. You either worship God or you worship some other being, something else that you've put in God's place, an idol we call that, or you worship yourself. There are not many options here. So our spirit is either concerned about God, we're relating to Him, or we're relating to ourself, we've made ourselves our God, or we're relating to something else that's come into our life, money, possessions, power, whatever it may be, it's a hundred things. So the worship of God is conducted through the Spirit. That's why it's so really important you understand what I'm preaching on today. I don't think that people think like that. I think, well, that, that, for example, feelings have nothing to do with worshiping God. People say, well, I, man, I really felt something. Well, that wasn't, you don't, you don't feel God. God is a spirit, and you worship Him spiritually. Boy, that is a height of heights there. Now, go with me to another reference in the Bible, and let me show you Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 12. And I'll show you that the Bible makes this distinction more than once. And in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it's a familiar verse to you in many ways, for the Word of God, the Bible, is quick or alive. It is powerful like the wind. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, which in those days they sharpened both sides for sword fights. It pierces under the dividing asunder of our soul, our spirit, and the joints and marrow, that's the body. The body has the joints and the marrow. So the Bible again affirms man is a trinity. He's a house with three rooms, body, soul, and spirit. And the Word of God discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so the Bible makes that distinction. It's the only place that you'll find it in the written literature. Now, I've, I've spent a lot of time just explaining to you body, soul, and spirit. And I want to make three quick applications because I don't want you to just listen to theory and not having where to go with it. So if you have the knowledge of what we are, body, soul, and spirit, a biblical understanding of that, then you're going to understand three critical things in life. Number one, you'll understand what is spiritual death. What is spiritual death? The Bible says in Ephesians 2 and 1, Paul writes and said, you're dead in trespasses and sins. He's writing to the Christians at Carth and telling them they're dead in, in trespasses and sins. So what is spiritual death? Okay, let me explain it to you. Go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 17. 
Adam has just been created, and God is explaining to him the rules of the game here. And God says, Adam, I want to tell you something. You can eat of every fruit in, of every tree in the garden, this wonderful paradise, this universe I've created for you. But Adam, in that one tree in the center of the garden, if you eat of that, in the day you eat of it, you will die. In the day you eat, you're going to die, and you're going to die immediately. Boy, we read in chapter 3, Adam took the fruit from his wife, and he ate. Did he die? Didn't appear to, did he? He lived on for several hundred more years, according to the Bible. Could he still think and feel and make decisions? Yes. He had physical life. He had spiritual or soulish life. He had psychological life. But he was dead spiritually the minute that he put that fruit in his mouth. He died because he disobeyed God, and he died, and so Paul says, you're dead in trespasses and sins. So your neighbor out here is one of the nicest guys you ever lived by, just as nice as he can be. And you think, well, he may even be a Christian. But if he hasn't been born of the Spirit, he is spiritually dead. The moment Adam sinned, he died spiritually. And every time I preach a funeral, I explain to people that death doesn't mean the end of your existence. Death always means but one thing. It means separation. Physical death is separation of the body and the spirit. And psychological death is when you're separated from your own consciousness. And spiritual death is when you're separated from God. And so, hear me. If you sin, you die spiritually, and we've all already done that, haven't we? Adam's body and soul, mind, emotions, and will continued to function, but he was separated from God. He was dead spiritually. Well, what happened to Adam after that? He changed. Now, listen with me. I want you to get this. You've got to get this. You see, until he sinned, the Spirit of God was the driving force in his life. And if you are a born-again Christian, the Spirit of, if you are a Spirit-filled Christian, let me say it right. If you're a Spirit-filled Christian, the driving force in your life is the Spirit of God. Did you get that? If you are a Spirit-filled Christian, you are Spirit-driven, Spirit-directed, Spirit-controlled. If you are not saved, or if you're a carnal Christian, you're driven by your mind, your emotions, and your will. How do secular people make decisions? Mind, feeling, choosing. You see, they are soulish creatures. They're driven by their souls. Only Spirit-filled people are people that are controlled, driven, energized by the Spirit of God. And the day that Adam sinned, he was dominated and controlled by his mind, his emotions, and his will. So what governs the unsaved person? The soul, not his spirit. The spirit's dead. He basically lives at a higher animal level, 
self-preservation, self-propagation, self-gratification. Now, if you understand this, here's, here's the thing. Depravity, being lost, being spiritually dead, all the same thing. We're not just talking about people who shoot up on heroin. We're not talking about Nazi prison guards in the worst form of depravity that you could possibly imagine. We're talking about that nice neighbor next door, but he's spiritually dead. He doesn't have an appetite for the things of God. He didn't want it. Somebody was telling me this morning about a neighbor, and they had talked to him, said, you know, they knew a fair amount about the Bible. They have no interest in coming to church. Well, I know why they don't have any interest at all in attending church. His spirit, there's not anything alive there in that spiritual area. It's all about self-preservation, self-propagation, self-gratification, if you will. A higher level than the animals can live, but nothing different than them in many ways. But if you understand this, you you also know what is spiritual life, not just what is spiritual death, but what is spiritual life. What does it mean to be spiritually alive? Because I'm afraid a lot of Christians think, well, to be spiritually alive, it's just you've been forgiven of your sins, haven't you? You've come to Christ, and Christ has saved you. You've asked Him for salvation, and you believe in the gospel, and so, uh, you know, you, you, you have spiritual life. Well, here's the thing. Don't confuse spiritual life with justification. Justification is God pardoning us from our sins. Spiritual life is getting God out of heaven and into man. Now, I preached on this last Sunday night, and I told you I'd preach on it today again. Spiritual life is God coming and visiting me and producing spiritual life in my being, in my body, in my soul, in my spirit. Spiritual life is not getting Men out of earth into heaven, it's getting God out of heaven into man. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. Such a vital truth. I want you to turn there with me. Second Peter chapter 1. And there's just a little phrase there, and I preached from it last Sunday night. First, or Second Peter and uh, chapter number 1. I'm trying to find it here in my Bible. Okay, verse 4. Wherefore are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be, okay, hold on, get your pen or pencil out. I want you to circle a phrase in your Bible. Partakers of the divine nature. What is salvation? It is being a partaker of the divine nature. It's God coming out of heaven in the person of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and moving in to want, into your house. You have that house, and it has two rooms that are occupied before you're saved, the physical and the soul, the body and the soul. But it, when we receive Christ, God moves out of heaven, and He moves into that other room where the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence. Galatians speaks about this as well. And so salvation is God moving into our empty room. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 is the verse I was thinking of where it says that 
Christ liveth in me. Where does Christ live? He lives in my spirit. He moves into that empty room spiritually where I was dead in trespasses and sins, and he takes up residence within me. Christ liveth in me. The last thing, don't ever tell an audience the last. Half of them quit and go home right then. Half of y'all are already left, haven't you? No, I hope not. The third thing, number one, if you understand body, soul, and spirit, you understand, number one, what is spiritual death. You understand what is spiritual life. You understand why we have temptation and spiritual conflict. Why we have temptation and spiritual conflict. And what do I mean by that? Well, my body is subject to sin. My soul is subject to sin. We call it the fall, the sinful nature. And it's subject to sin. And I'm tempted as I go through life. Think of this verse, 1 Peter 2.11. It says, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against what? Your soul. Fleshly lust, the lust, the desires of the flesh, and they war, they bring conflict against your soul, your mind, emotions, and will. Galatians 5 and 17, the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other. So that when you want to do the right thing, the flesh and the soul say, oh, no, 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 we're not interested in that. Now, most people understand that bodily temptation, but they don't understand soulish temptation. The truth is I'm tempted more in my mind than I am through my body, if you stop and think about it. And so the flesh, not this right here, the flesh is everything that I am outside of Christ, body and soul. The flesh lusteth against the Spirit. When I get saved, it's contrary to it. The flesh goes to war against my spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And they're contrary, the Bible says, one to the other. And so the flesh, the flesh creates that conflict that we all feel as Christians. Now listen to me. The fact that you have temptation and spiritual conflict is probably a pretty good evidence that you're saved. Do you know that? You see, the unsaved guy, his spirit is dead. He doesn't have any conflict. Whatever he wants to do, just, man, just do it if you can do it. But you see, when you get saved and your spirit is energized and alive and you come to a situation and your flesh wants to do it and your spirit says, no, 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 that's wrong. You're not supposed to be doing that. You're a Christian now. The flesh is like a bully. He's been beating up on us ever since we were born. And you get saved, and now you've got to take that bully on. You've got to defeat him, and you defeat him spiritually. You say, no, 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 Mr. Flesh. No, no, no. My Bible says this, and this is the way I'm going to go. Turn with me to the book of Romans, and it's the most wonderful description, chapter 7 in your Bible, that you will ever find in all written literature anywhere in the world. Romans 7, 18 describes this conflict that Christians have because you now, your spirit is alive and your soul and your body are still, they're still fallen beings. 
So chapter 7, Romans, verse 18. I know that in me that is in my flesh, all that I am outside of Christ, dwelleth no good thing. For to will or to make a choice is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I know I ought to do, but the devil, but the evil which I would not, that I do. I find myself tempted and I give in to the flesh is what he's saying. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find a law, a principle operating within me that when I would do good, evil springs up its head. It's present with me. I delight in the law of God after the inward mind, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members of the parts of my body. Oh, wretched man that I am, Paul says, who can deliver me from the body of this death? And then he gives us hope. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. You see, receiving Christ is no guarantee of health and wealth and prosperity and perpetual happiness. It is, that's, that, that may or may not happen for you. But I can tell you this, throughout your life as a Christian, there's going to be conflict, and I hope you will be happy, and I hope you'll be prosperous. All those are wonderful things, but I tell you, if you look for that, you may be disappointed. Listen to me. It is the Holy Spirit that makes life wonderful for us, not the other things that people are looking for. It is the Holy Spirit who produces love. When you think of an ideal person, what do you think of? You think they're a loving person, don't you? The Holy Spirit produces joy. Don't you like to be around joyful people? The Holy Spirit gives me peace. He gives me a sense of contentment. I'm not frustrated all the time internally. The Holy Spirit gives me humility, meekness. I don't have to always be concerned about trying to elevate myself. I am what I am in Christ. The Holy Spirit gives me a desire to obey the Lord. And I know that obedience is critical to having victory in my life. And the Christian who lives perpetually a disobedient life is not going to be a happy person. You see, everything that we think about and that we need as human beings, God has provided it for us through His Holy Spirit when we become spiritually alive through receiving Christ as our Savior. Now, let me ask you a question. Based on what I've preached this morning, are you saved? Or maybe a better way of asking that question, because you've heard the other one so often. Do you have spiritual life? Do you have spiritual life in your soul, in your being? Are you spiritually alive? Or is your whole life about your body, your mind, your emotions, your will? Is that spirit part of you been activated, energized, made alive through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if you're a Christian, 
And you say, you know, I know that I believe in Christ. I know that I'm trusting Christ. But yet, you're living in disobedience. There's not the joy that you thought it was going to bring to you. You listen to what I've said this morning. Because a filling of the Holy Spirit of God in your life can absolutely turn your life around and make it well worth living every day. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.